and thirst for righteousness. A hunger and thirst for righteousness will be displayed in a pure heart. As we said last week, we, we can connect the first three Beatitudes to Beatitudes 5, 6, and 7. So those who are pure in spirits will be merciful. Those who mourn their sin will be pure in heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the pure in heart are those who are mourning over the impurity of their hearts. And that's important for us at the start. Because when I think of my own heart, and when I say a heart, I'm referring to our our inner being, involving our, our motives, our intentions, our desires, our feelings, our emotions, our will. When I think of my own heart, the first thought that comes to mind is not, oh, well, my heart is pure, I have confidence I shall see God. So I want to say from the outset, don't be overwhelmed by this beatitude. Remember, Jesus didn't come to save those who are pure, but those who are impure. Jesus said himself, I haven't come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Paul plainly states in Romans 3, no one is good. No, not even one. We are not pure. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, He says, for our sake, that is, for those of us who are impure, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we have righteousness, purity from Jesus Christ that makes us acceptable before God. John writes in 1 John 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see? We have received the purity of Jesus Christ, and those who are trusting, who are placing their hope in Christ's purity, they then purify themselves. Those who mourn their sin, their impurity, purify themselves, as John says. But we're only able to do this because of what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. God saved us, he Brought us into the kingdom, Paul writes to Titus, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. God has given us new life by the Spirit of God. We are a a new creation, we have a a new heart, a new inner being, the Spirit of Christ within us. And from that comes new motives, intentions, desires, feelings, emotions, and will. 
So let's take some time to think what it means for those in the kingdom to be pure in heart. Two main things I want to consider this morning. And we'll use an Old Testament passage to help us think about this and to understand what it means to be pure in heart. It will be helpful just now to turn to Psalm 24. And we'll read the the first few verses of Psalm 24 together. Let's read Psalm 24 from verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The next three verses are what we will focus on. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So the question here in this psalm is, who can know the blessing of being in God's presence? And there are two answers. Firstly, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And secondly, he who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So let's take one at a time this morning. So firstly, to be pure in heart means that your external actions match up with what is in your heart. Clean hands, that's the action, and a pure heart. The focus in this beatitude is clearly what is going on in the heart. And and this is is nothing new. This has always been God's interest and concern for his people. So even if we look back to Deuteronomy 10, God says to his people through Moses, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You see, God was not just interested in external obedience, but he wanted obedience from the heart. In Isaiah... God says to his people, he's, he's had enough of burnt offerings and sacrifices. God has, has had enough of, of external obedience that isn't matched by a heart of obedience. And as Jesus comes and he teaches through the Sermon on the Mount, the same point becomes very clear. He says that, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, as an example. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see? The concern there is not so much not committing adultery, but it's not lusting in our hearts. It's not willing or desiring or 
feeling lust. We could turn over to Matthew 23, which we looked at last week. And in Matthew 23, we have those corresponding woes. So remember, Matthew 5 gives us a picture of what those in the kingdom of heaven look like. Matthew 23 gives a picture of what those not in the kingdom of heaven look like. And just last week we saw that Jesus pronounced woes on Pharisees and scribes for tithing, but neglecting the weighty matter of mercy. And directly after that, Jesus says, verse 25, He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. You see, purity comes from the inside out. To be pure in heart is the opposite we see here of being hypocritical. To be pure in heart is to be completely sincere, not on the surface, but at the center of our very being. Blessed is the man whose service for the Lord is sincere. Blessed is the man whose external actions match up with what is in his heart. And this speaks to us very clearly about how we deal with our sin, those of us in the kingdom of God. It speaks to us clearly about how we purify ourselves. Listen to what Matthew, or sorry, to what Jesus says in Matthew 15. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So what we learn is that if we want and we desire to put sin to death in our lives, our focus must not be on the external but the internal, what is in our hearts. So to use Jesus' example, if you struggle with lust, I mean, there are many external things you can do. You may set up accountability with a trusted friend. You're able to set up programs on laptops and phones to prevent you going on certain sites. You can stop yourself going certain places. You know you may be tempted, but none of this is actually getting to the heart of the issue, excuse the pun. Because the heart of the issue is the heart. If you struggle with lust, that is because there is lust and sexual immorality in your heart. And what you need to do is to go to God and plead for his spirit to change you from within. Think of David after committing adultery. And after a really raw, honest confession to the Lord, David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
He didn't pray, God, please help me not to do this again. No, he prayed, God, create in me a clean heart. I think perhaps when we sin, we're we're not actually good at admitting that that's right in our hearts. We're not good at saying, God, there is lust in my heart. There is sexual immorality in my heart. Please, God, clean my heart. Because from that then, our actions will be different. To use another one of Jesus' examples, if you struggle with anger, well, often we're very good at blaming our anger on other people and circumstances. And again, of course, there's things we can put in place. We can step out of a situation. We can breathe slower. We can count to ten and so forth, whatever else is helpful. But again, those things never, ever address the problem of the heart. What we need to do is say to God, God, my heart is angry. My desire right now is to be angry. Please create in me a clean heart. Because then our actions will be different. We deal with sin from the inside out. The pure in heart are sincere from the inside out. Secondly, and here we return to Psalm 24 again. Secondly, the pure in heart do not lift up their soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And you will see that this is very closely linked to the first point. Just looking on at Psalm 25 verse 1 actually is very helpful to us in understanding the meaning here. In Psalm 25 we read, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. You see, to be pure in heart is to trust in God alone, is to not give your worship to any other but God, to lift your soul only to what is true. In other words, to be pure in heart is to have a single-mindedness from within. If you think about it, if something is pure, it has, it just contains one thing. So, pure apple juice has just apples. And 100% pure silk, it is just silk. Or pure metal is metal not mixed with any alloy. You see, the, the pure in heart are unmixed in their heart's desire to praise and to please God before anything or any one else. Think of the Ten Commandments. The first four are to do with our relationship with God, our complete loyalty to God. The other six then are to do with our actions towards others. And you see there how these two points are so closely linked. Because if our heart's desire is to please and honour God, then naturally from that, will flow actions that match our heart's desire. 
In Matthew 22, um, Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, um, which is the greatest command? Well, Jesus answered him, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first command. And again, we see that Jesus' concern is the heart. Because when the heart is right, everything else will flow right from that. James 4, James writes, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, just before that, James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's speaking to those who are, yes, wanting to live as God's people, and yet at the same time desiring everything that the world has also. And so James says, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, your passions or your pleasures are at war within you. And what James is saying is that you need to narrow your passions, you need to narrow your desires and your pleasures down to one single thing. Worshipping, loving, pleasing God. I you there's real freedom that comes from purity of heart. No one has, has freedom when they are torn between desires. I mean, it, it never feels easy, I don't think, to have different priorities in, in our lives. And of course, that, that's true of all of us. We all have various priorities within our lives. And perhaps you, you've often felt torn between each of them. You've maybe even thought it would be so much easier if I just had one priority and I could just focus on that. There is great freedom that comes from a single-minded heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the sincere single-minded, for they, they shall see God. I want to think for a moment, what does it mean to see God? What does it mean to see God? Well, if I arrange to see you, and you agree you have permitted me to see you. You have permitted me to be with you in your presence. But to see God is to be permitted into his presence. The Bible begins and ends with the presence of God. In the beginning, the, the garden was the special place of God's presence, the place where his people knew him, experienced him, related with him. But when man sinned, when man became double-minded, 
We know the man was removed from the special place of God's presence. And the whole story of the Bible is God working to bring his people back into his presence again. And he does this through his own very presence coming to earth in Jesus Christ, ultimately to die for our sin that we might be brought close to God again. Paul says in Ephesians that it is the blood of Christ that has brought us near to God. And we know God's presence now as the Spirit dwells within the church, God's people. And as we live now, we purify ourselves for God's future and greater presence. We read in Revelation 21 that when we are purified, when we are completely single-minded, we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, the very end goal of God's salvation is that he would be with his people. Heaven and earth will be one. We will again know, we will experience, we will relate to God in a way that we have never experienced before. To see God is to be in his presence. To see God is to know God's Comfort. With God's presence comes God's comfort. We read in the next verse in Revelation 21 that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. We read in Psalm 27, we looked at one verse from this psalm on Tuesday evening. In this psalm, David is in distress. We're not sure exactly what the circumstances are that has um, distressed him. But in his distress, he is seeking God. And we read in verses 7 to 9, in Psalm 27, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. He says to God, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, Lord, your face do I seek. Hide not your face from me. And we see something similar to this, actually, in many of the Psalms. That the psalmist's greatest fear and distress is that God would hide his face, For example, Psalm 51, which we looked at earlier, David prays, cast me not away from your presence, God. This is his greatest fear. But the greatest comfort of God's people comes from being in, comes from knowing, and comes from sensing God's presence. We have Great comfort of God's presence with us now. I mean, perhaps in dark times it can be the only comfort. But how much greater will our comfort be in God's future and greater presence?
To see God is to be in his presence. To see God is to know his comfort. And to see God is to know him for who he truly is. To see him in all his glory. You may remember in Exodus 33, um, Moses asked God to see his glory. God graciously granted his request. But God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But God says, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses, as a a sinful man, he, he could not see the full glory of God and live. Perhaps at some point or other you've, you've looked at someone from behind, perhaps from the distance, and said, I'm not totally sure if that's them or not. But then if they, if they turn around, well, you know. When you see someone face to face, you know who they truly are. To see God face to face is to know him for who he truly is. Even when Jesus Christ came to this earth, the glory of God was veiled in his flesh. His disciples, the people around, got to see something of his glory with the miracles he did. The the disciples got got to see uh, something more of the true glory of God at the transfiguration, but it was a glimpse. Now, we see something of the glory of God here and now. I mean, all creation, Scripture tells us, points to the glory of God. And for those who are his, God has graciously shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know the glory of God now by by looking to Jesus Christ in the word of God. But Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, Paul says, Face to face. The mirror Paul was referring to, I'm told, is probably metal or bronze, so the reflection would only ever at best be dim. But there will be a day we will see God face to face. That is, we will see his glory clearly in all its fullness. Revelation 21 again, describing that place that we will live in God's presence. We read, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. There will be no night. Listen to this, nothing unclean, impure will ever enter it. Our eternal experience will be the full, clear glory of God, and it will never dim. Blessed are the pure in heart, for 
for they shall see God. Let us pray. Our God, what a future is before us. To know, to see, to experience, to sense the full weight of your glory. What a thought that then we will be pure, that we will be single-minded. And so your glory will never be veiled again from us. It will never be dimmed. God, until that day, will you give us one pure and holy passion. Give us one obsession, one ambition for our lives. Seek hard after you. Be pure in heart. It's the great reward that we shall see you. God, this world is empty, pale, and poor. God, help us to see the worth that is in Christ. Father, as we continue, we recognize that we suffer in these days. So may we know, have a strong sense of your presence just now. May we know the comfort of your presence. And may we know the great hope of your full presence in the future. Lead us on, we pray.